This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. In 1787, 55 white men met in Philadelphia to create the document that would become the framework for how the United States would be governed. Of those 55, just under half enslaved human beings. At the time, five of the 13 states had begun the process of gradually abolishing slavery. Although the word slave does not appear in the Constitution, the institution of slavery was certainly on the minds of the framers. Among the compromises that they made around slavery, which included the infamous Three-Fifths Clause, was one regarding the transatlantic slave trade. In effect, they punted the issue. Article 1, Section 9 of the United States Constitution, titled Powers Denied Congress, states, quote, The migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit shall not be prohibited by the Congress prior to the year 1808, unquote. By that date, nearly two decades after the Constitution was ratified, popular sentiment had changed, at least regarding the transatlantic slave trade. And on March 2nd, 1807, President Thomas Jefferson, himself an enslaver, signed into law an act prohibiting importation of slaves, which went into effect on the earliest possible date, January 1st, 1808. The law, of course, did not stop the thriving domestic slave trade, which has been estimated as generating three to six million dollars annually in trade revenue. It also didn't completely eliminate the involvement of United States citizens and United States ships in the transatlantic slave trade. In 1819, Congress passed legislation, modified in 1820, which deemed the transatlantic slave trade to be piracy, and which set the penalty for participation as death, although only one person was ever executed for the crime. Despite the long-standing prohibition and severe penalty for breaking the law, the last slave ship landed in the United States a full four decades after it was classified piracy. In 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, the timing wasn't mere coincidence. After the United States began to come apart at the seams, over the expansion of slavery into the Western territories, some militant enslavers in the South, dubbed the Fire Eaters, 
agitated for a resumption of the transatlantic slave trade. In 1856, aboard the steamboat William Jones Jr., a group of men, led by the boat's captain, Timothy Meher, made a bet that kidnapped Africans could be smuggled into the United States despite the ban. Meher hired his Alabama neighbor, William Foster, to captain the voyage. Foster's schooner, the Clotilda, built in 1855, was designed to carry cargo, with two masts and a nearly seven-foot-deep hold. Whether or not Foster designed the ship with human cargo in mind, he agreed to the scheme and Meher found buyers for the kidnapped Africans they planned to smuggle. On March 4, 1860, Foster and his crew set out for Africa. Unlike Foster, the crew was not aware of the nefarious goal of the ocean crossing, and upon landing on an island off the coast of Africa, they mutinied. With the promise of double wages, Foster convinced them to continue the trip. In Africa, they purchased 110 Africans, who had been forcibly kidnapped from Tarkar, a town in Yoruba land, in what is now southwest Nigeria. The residents of Tarkar had been attacked by soldiers from the Dahomey Empire, who then marched them for two weeks to the port city of Wida in what is now Benin. For 13 days, the terrified Africans, most of whom were under 20 years old, and many of whom had likely never before seen the sea, were smuggled across the ocean on the Clotilda, kept in the hold of a ship that usually held crops like cotton and sugar. 110 human beings were confined in a space 23 feet long and ranging from 18 to 23 feet wide. Adding to their trauma, the imprisoned Africans were forced to travel naked. Upon reaching Alabama, the ship was towed up Mobile Bay, and after everyone disembarked, the Clotilda was set on fire to hide the evidence of the crime. Even so, the smuggling was an open secret in Mobile. But the perpetrators were never tried for their act of piracy. The Africans were split up and sold off, with no effort made to keep family members together. Scattered throughout Alabama, the enslaved were forced into hard labor. When the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect two and a half years later, on January 1st, 1863, the Clotilda survivors were freed in theory, but not in fact. For most of the survivors, it was not until after the defeat of the Confederacy, at the end of the Civil War, that they were finally liberated. And even then, for some, their practical situations did not change much, as they were forced by circumstances to continue to work for low wages 
for their former enslavers. Some thirty of the shipmates, though, saved every penny they had and worked together to buy property near the mouth of the Chickasabogue River, creating a community they called African Town after their beloved homeland where they yearned to return. The community, now known as Africa Town, still stands, and its residents include around 100 descendants of the Clotilda survivors. In 2012, the Africa Town History District was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. In January 1940, Matilda McCreer died in Selma, Alabama. McCreer, who arrived in Alabama on the Clotilda at the age of two, was the last known U.S. survivor of the transatlantic slave trade. Nearly 80 years later, in May 2019, researchers announced that they had found the wreckage of the Clotilda in the Mobile River near 12 Mile Island. The Alabama Historical Commission, with funding from the state of Alabama, has undertaken a project of excavation, and pieces of the recovered Clotilda are now on display at Africa Town Heritage House, which is operated by the History Museum of Mobile. Joining me now is historian Dr. Hannah Durkin, author of The Survivors of the Clotilda, The Lost Stories of the Last Captives of the American Slave Trade. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. Hi, oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yes. So I would love to hear how you came to write this book about the survivors of the Clotilda. Yeah. So I was actually working on a slightly different project. So I was researching the films and writings of Zora Del Hurston. Now, Hurston was possibly the first black woman to hold a camera professionally, hold a film camera. So she was a really important ethnographic filmmaker. And she she filmed one of the survivors of the Catilda, the man named Kujo Lewis or Kazula. And so I was writing about that. But I also wanted to see if I could identify other people in her film footage. So I was looking at this early version of her ethnographic memoir, Mules and Men. I don't think it was published until about maybe 50 years after she wrote it. And it, well, actually, no, it wasn't discovered until 50 years after she wrote it. It was published finally in 2001, so 
mean, she died in, the, in 1960, so quite a long time after her death. So I was looking in that, and I noticed in the appendix to that book, one of the appendices, it lists the names of her interviewees. So I was going through that, and suddenly I realized that she mentioned that she'd interviewed an African woman. And I realized this African woman must have been the woman that she referred to in a letter to Langston Hughes, in which she talks about meeting another Clotilda survivor. She describes her as most delightful, those are her words. But she also says, but no one will ever know about her business. She is a better talker than Kudjo, so Kudjo Lewis. So historians have rightly assumed that we could never know who this woman was. And then I had this name, Sally Smith. And it, obviously, a very, very common name. So it said that she lived on a different river from where she lived. It said that she had a son, not a daughter. So there was lots of sort of misdirection in this letter to Langston Hughes. But it was enough for me to sort of narrow that down. And I just kept searching and searching. It gave me enough material to write an article. And then shortly after I published that article, a newspaper, a digitized newspaper appeared online that showed that actually there was a woman who outlived Sally Smith, or to give her a, a West African name, Madoshi. So then there was another article, and then it sort of spiraled into a book, basically. So I, I want to hear a little bit more about this, you know, sort of digging for clues, investigating. It, it, it's almost like a, a mystery to solve, finding all of these survivors. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the process of doing that and the different kinds of sources you needed to consult. Absolutely. So the most important, well, some of the most important sources, of course, are genealogical records. So census data that might identify a person as African-born. Of course, that doesn't tell you that they're a Clotilda survivor, though. So I was going through all these and sort of matching up all these different, let's say, I guess, census records and death records and and also looking online. So I benefited so much from um, digitized newspaper and magazine sources. So I'm not sure you, that you could have done this kind of research very easily 10 or 20 years ago. But I was, yeah, basically just uncovering more magazine and newspaper interviews with Clotilda survivors or people who were identified as African-born. A lot of the time, in fact, almost all the time, they weren't, the name of the slave ship was never mentioned. So it was quite hard to be sure if they were a Clotilda survivor. So again, there's a lot more misdirection in the archival material. And it seemed like, and certainly on some occasions, either the interviewer or the journalist who's writing this article assumes that they're wanderer survivors. So the wanderer was the, the penultimate US slave ship that landed off the coast of Jekyll Island, Georgia, about 19 months before the Clotilda, in about November 1858. So, yeah, there was a lot of misdirection, basically, but it, I was just putting lots and lots of information together. And, of course, descendants and other researchers were very helpful, too. They shared material. They, in fact, one descendant contacted me out, out of the blue with a, an oral history recorded by the grandson of a Clotilda survivor. This was all taken down in 1984. And there was another family reached out to me via the Clotilda Descendants Association, which is the, the organization that works to, you know, memorialize, commemorate, ensure that, that we remember the Clotilda survivors. And they contacted me and they'd had this sort of family history book. And their ancestor died in 1883. So to, to keep this history was quite amazing and it all matched up. So I was able to identify, confirm that this that their ancestor was a Clotilda survivor by matching up with archival information I had. And that meant that the Clotilda Descendants Association accepted them as, as descendants and they were able to join that organization. So 
they're just wonderful things in that sense. But of course, as you as you were saying, the material was so fragmentary. In most cases, it was a case of putting things together and also being very mindful of the fact that although it was extremely fragmentary, there was almost no almost no records um, of in particular women survivors of the Middle Passage. So beyond the Clotilda survivors account, historians have documented a couple of narratives from uh, page-long narratives from Barbados, there's a petition from Massachusetts, and also this four-page memoir from Jamaica. And of those four documents, only two of them mention the Middle Passage, and only one of them does so in any detail, that's the four-page memoir. So when you're looking for testimonies of women Middle Passage survivors, that's certainly in the English language. There might be, you know, you know, there might be Brazilian documents, for example. But looking at the English-speaking American hemisphere, then that's all, all there is, which is terrible. But it made me realize just how important the Clotilda survivors' stories were. So let's talk a little bit about the Clotilda itself and. For context, right, the transatlantic slave trade is abolished by the United States in 1808, very early on. There's, of course, a thriving domestic slave trade still going on. And then it's, I believe, a capital crime in 1820. And we're talking about 1860. So why do these men, these white slave traders in Alabama, think that they'll get away with it? Why do they do it? Like, they don't have to. That's not the only way to get slaves at this time period. So what, what is going on here? What's the context for this? Yeah, so the, as you say, so the slave trade is is banned you know, in the British Empire in 1807 and in the United States in 1808. And it's declared piracy, so it becomes a treasonous capital crime in 1820. But it's not very well policed at all. It's, or it's Other nations are very slow to, to stop. And in particular, African people are being trafficked to um, to Brazil, and by the 1850s, it's um, it's really Cuba. That's where the centre of the transatlantic slave trade is, and and in fact, a, a quarter of all survivors of the Middle Passage are trafficked after 1808. So this is a the transatlantic slave trade begins around 1500. So this is so a quarter are, are landing in the fi- sort of I guess the final. Certainly, the final century of the trade, and this final seventy years, really. So, so this is something that's carrying on that isn't very well policed. That there is a high demand for enslaved labour in Cuba, in particular. The sugar industry is totally powered by this trafficking industry. So, so I think it's about seventy-one percent of of people trafficked to Cuba are trafficked after eighteen twenty. So, if your ancestors are from, you know, African Cuban. And you know, ancestry. Well, basically, if you are of African Caribbean ancestry, it's most likely that your ancestors were illegally trapped. So, what's also important to know is the fact that it's U.S. ships in the main that are that are actually trafficking um, African people. So, what that means is that there's very much an awareness that the U.S. slave trade is carrying on. Okay, the slaves are being taken to Cuba instead of the United States. But it's not being very well policed at all, and and, the, and certainly the Clotilda conspiracists are very aware that there is a U.S. slave trade and that it's that they want to profit from it. What are the conditions then in Africa that are 
encouraging African people, so I think in this case it's the Dahomeys, to kidnap the Yoruba, to, to bring them, to sell them. Like what, what is driving that? Yeah, so basically there's the European people's hunger for enslaved labor, basically. So what happens is that you know, Europeans land on the African continent and they create this sort of horrible economy in which basically different African communities, different African societies are having to trade guns for people to protect themselves against their own people's enslavement. So you could in a cycle where you, you know, you, to step away from that becomes almost impossible. That's not to, that's not to justify the horrible trade in human beings and in many cases, children or young people, but it means that it's, that you're so, you're so easily uh, made complicit in it. Whereas when you look at the Europeans and, and the Americas, the, the reason that tra- slavery is happening is simply to power economies, that slave trade is happening in the West African, in West Africa because it's a sort of dog eat dog environment. So what you get is social, you know, social instability, demographic breakdown. You create these militaristic states that are dependent on a warfare rather than agriculture to to sustain themselves, basically. So you mentioned that there's not a lot in the English language that describes the Middle Passage, especially for women. Could you talk a little bit about what what we learn from the Clotilde survivors about that that experience, the experience of being kidnapped, of undergoing this traumatic journey, and then being in this new land where suddenly they are enslaved? Like, what what do we learn from? their experiences, what they told to researchers. Yeah, we learn so much about the, you know, the, the middle passage is a human lived experience. I should have mentioned earlier actually that of course an important source in my in my uh, book is Zorana Hurston's book length interview with Kujo Lewis, Kazula to give him his more precise African name. But what we get from the I guess from their specific experiences, especially when you piece them together, is the the specific I mean the specific losses in many cases so the separation of family members parents from children um, of course you learn about the specific horrors so we know that a lot of a lot of people died um, during the Middle Passage so so we already know about dysentery and smallpox and specific infections that people die from but we also learn I guess in particular about the fact that's, I mean, it's, I mean, I should say that it's, it was a 45 day voyage, but we also get, okay, the fairly, the fairly short snippets, but we get even accounts of seeing other people being thrown overboard the slave ship. And of course, when they actually arrive in Alabama, we learn again about the separations. And of course, we learn as well about the ways in which they work to hold on to their identities and their West African identities are so, so important to them. And so central to their worldview as well. They never, I mean, they, they, um, convert to Christianity and they're extremely faithful, devoted Christian, you know, they're, they're, they spend hours in church every Sunday, but they also, you know, determinedly hold on to and very proud of their, their African, um, spiritual beliefs and their African, their identities as Africans, which of course, you know, they wouldn't have thought of themselves as Africans when they were when they lived in West Africa, but they they claim this identity is as important to them 
Kazula's wife actually talks about her children being all Africans and she's so proud of that. And yeah, so they're just incredibly inspiring people, despite what they all went through. Could you talk a little bit about the experience as a researcher of reading these incredibly difficult passages? I mean, I was tearing up reading it, tearing up just now as you're talking about it. How do you, as a researcher, do that research, protect yourself, you know, in your own well-being as you're doing that? Yeah, it's, I know you do start to lose faith in human nature when you read all of this. You think, how can, how can, it's this, the, you know, the youngest Clotilda survivor was two years old and she lost, I mean, when she was separate, when she was sold on the West African coast, she, she was separated from her two brothers. When she landed in the United States, she was separated from two of her three sisters. And she, so she still has a mother and one sister, but she grows up never knowing those siblings. Her mother dies in the 1870s. So it, it is, it's so incredibly hard. And I think, I think the really, the, the really important thing is, is, is recognizing their humanity. You know, they, I guess the, the driving factor is giving them a voice, but it is, it's hard to, yeah. So I feel like I've read the worst of human nature, but also read the best by reading the, the voices of stories of older survivors. So it's, yeah, I think probably that I would recommend doing this kind of research in small doses, but I hate going back to read, you know, middle passage, reading about the middle passage. I, I hate to sort of fact checking that chapter, that's for sure. That's the hardest bit for me. One way, of course, that the Clotilda survivors are not completely representative of other people who went through the Middle Passage is that once they got to the United States, they weren't enslaved very long. It was still terrible and traumatic, and some of them died, but they it wasn't a very long period of time. Could you talk a little bit about that and the way that they're able, perhaps, to hold on to their identity more than others might have because it was a relatively short period of time? Yes. Yeah, so one of the many horrible things about the transatlantic slave trade is that the average life expectancy of an enslaved person was about seven years. So they were exceptional in so many ways in that the fact that some of them lived, and the last of them lived until 1940. So, you know, that their experience is, is very unusual in that sense in the sense that they are, uh, they land in Alabama in July 1860. And of course, they're liberated um, almost five years later. But I mean, the, their their experience of slavery is is again very harrowing. I mean, some of them were forced to work on steamboats, and I found an account that showed that one of them died. But you know, in December eighteen sixty, they fell they fell overboard and drowned. And of course, others were sent to work in the cotton fields, of, the cotton belt of Central Alabama. So they're you know working horribly long days, picking hundred pounds of cotton a day. So. The experience of slavery is 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 terrible. Of course, it's 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 much shorter than than for most slave trade survivors would endure. But certainly, what's um what's striking is so they they attempt to certainly when they when they land in Alabama, they attempt to carry on with it, with their dancing culture, their traditions. But they're made to feel ashamed. They're made to feel that they are quote unquote savages. You know that they are not um, civilized and. I've talked about them, you know, resisting that, but they, they do sort of give up some of their, 
their tradition, or at least they they don't practice them openly. So they are um, certainly struggling with um, struggling with that alien environment that doesn't recognise um, the value at all of their of their cultural traditions. But certainly when they're liberated, I mean, for most for most of them, the situation doesn't change. It doesn't change very quickly. So they're still trapped in the cotton fields of central Alabama. The those who are working on the steamboats in in around well who are living in Mobile, they, they're forced to work for their former enslavers. They eventually manage to achieve independence by, um, by saving money and creating their own township, which they name African Town, which still exists. Today it's known as Africa Town. It's just north of Mobile. And they do this, create this thriving community that grows to about two to three thousand people. By the turn of the 20th century, when most people had their own businesses, so these are black-owned businesses, just a thriving, incredible economy that you know that they build by simply that you know working hard and they're, they're just the best gardeners. They have the reputation of being the best business people in the in the land, and yeah, they do so well to to. I mean, I was speaking quite recently to a descendant of a Clotilda survivor. She was the great great granddaughter. But her father remembered his ancestor, and he was saying that she couldn't she couldn't remember exactly what what her father was saying. But apparently, uh, her ancestor had this reputation for being a brilliant. She had a reputation for growing things, and this this reputation is you know it's handed down or it's it's, it's recorded. So she's so they clearly are bringing West African cultural practices and uh, farming practices that are. Helping them to thrive in this really hostile alien environment. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what these stories tell us about generational trauma, generational poverty, because it's it's clear that even after they're emancipated and they do remarkable things, but it's still a very difficult life. There's still just a, a lot of hardship. They don't typically live particularly long, even if it's longer than other enslaved people might have lived. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and what these stories can teach us about that. Absolutely. I mean, of course, what's remarkable about the Mobile-based Katilda survivors is that they establish their own school and they appoint a teacher. Um, and this school becomes a very important educational centre in the early 20th century. So they the Clotilda survivors are constantly working to help their descendants to give the descendants the best opportunities that they can. But of course, those opportunities are still incredibly limited. I mean, certainly in, in the cotton belt of central Alabama, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's no funding for education. There's no, there's no sort of outside sort of state funded support for the community. And of course, one thing that's very sad about the Kutilda survivors is that um, I guess if you looked look for example at um, Kutilda Lewis's children, I mean his sons his sons all died at quite a young age, and most of them died violently as well. But yeah, as I mentioned, they establish their own township in Mobile. A community of them does that. But what their descendants find is that they're they're caught in cycles of poverty and violence that don't allow them to to really escape that heritage so quite horribly you have the Ku Klux Klan that emerges 
just after the civil war to ensure that they can't ever sort of free themselves. I mean, one one of the issues is that you have, you know, you had tenant farming, sharecropping, where people are renting out land, the portion of land to 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 work, you know, to grow cotton on. Um, the land, the quality of the soil degenerates every year. Um, so what they can produce gets poorer and poorer. They can never, and of course that land is owned by their former enslavers. So they're always caught in this economic system of, of bondage, really. And of course you have, in the early 20th century, you have, um, horribly, you have lynchings. And what's so striking about, there are three lynchings that take place just outside Africa town, so close to the place that it seems as if it's a deliberate attempt to terrorize a thriving community, you know, black community just outside the beer that's deliberately attempting to put them in their place. And so you have just a situation as well where there's no, I mean, it's not until about 1960 that, that residents of Africa town get indoor plumbing. Them and also, of course, paved roads and streets. And Clotilda survivors living outside of Africa town. Of course, they some of them are still living in the cabins in which they were enslaved. And of course, they, these are people living along dirt roads where where you you can never really escape that environment. And of course, you have voting rights are taken away as well. And so they so some of the Clotilda survivors managed to vote just after they achieved freedom, but that's very quickly taken away. So, yeah, so there's this cycle of um, poverty, violence, and a lack of social mobility is just really striking and really sad. So you're able to draw some interesting connections from the Clitilda survivors to the civil rights movement, which, of course, the main part of the civil rights movement that we think about is is several decades after the last of the Clitilda survivors has has passed away. Could you talk a little bit about those connections? Yeah, absolutely. So I was really struck by those connections because they're 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 the same spaces. So I identified Clitilda survivors in well near to Selma. So Radoshi, I think I mentioned who um who Zora Hurston mentioned in a letter, she actually befriended. So in the in the 1930s, she befriended a future civil rights leader. So she befriended a young woman called Amelia Boynton Robertson. That's that was um well that's the name she's known by. She had a she married um more than once, so she had a few surnames. But Amelia Boynton Robertson was such an important figure in the civil rights movement because she she was part of a 30 year long voting campaign in a in and around Selma, and she actually invited. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to Selma, which really sort of instigates or really helped instigate the um, the Selma to Montgomery marches, which of course in turn leads to the Voting Rights Act. So this is a huge piece of legislation during the civil rights movement. So Amelia Boynton Robertson is such an important figure there. Now, Radoshi's neighbour, Matilda McCree, who was the youngest Clitilda survivor at two years old and also its last survivor, that she died in January 1940. Now she actually, well, she goes with Radoshi to meet Kujo Lewis in, in December 1931. It's the first time she's been, that either of them have been back to Mobile Bay and to, to see the actual wreckage of the Clotilda. And 
yeah, Matilda McCreary, so obviously it's such an emotional experience for her to see to see that ship, what's after the ship, of course, and and to confront the sight of the Clotilda landing and the horror that shaped her life and brought so much loss to her life. But she actually, so she's so struck by this experience that she actually marches or she walks 15 miles from her rural Dallas County home to a Dallas County courthouse in Selma to, to basically ask for compensation for her kidnap and enslavement. And of course, this white judge turns her away, and, you know, straight away, but she catches the attention of the journalists. And so this, this march to Dallas County Courthouse ends up in the, in a newspaper. But what's so striking about this, this courthouse is it's the same courthouse that voting rights campaigners gathered at at the start of the, you know, the, the Selma to Montgomery marches or the, the Selma voting rights campaign. So it's the exact same place. And the, the, the chairman of the board of registrars who turns them away when they, you know, try to register to vote is the same man who was, um, Matilda McCreer's landlord for, for decades. Before that, he was his father and before that, he was his father in law. So this, this is the man or the family that she'd labored for for decades. And what's also striking as well. So it wasn't just Selma, but I identified other groups of, or another group of Clitholder survivors in and around Montgomery. And the longest lived of those survivors was a woman named Booja Moore. She was actually a grown woman when she was kidnapped. And she had three young children who were left behind on the West African coast. And she obviously she lost them. But she, she continues to live. So when she achieves her freedom, she's determined to live as a traditional Yoruba woman, uh, would tra- a tradeswoman. So she, she is determined to, to trade, to trade her wares in Montgomery. So, so twice a week, you know, she gathers mints, berries, sassafras roots around her home. So she gathers and she forages for, for wares that she can sell. She takes the train into Montgomery twice a week and she walks along Commerce Street, which is just off from the Alabama River. She walks down Commerce Street and she walks along what is now Dexter Avenue, so Market Street, Dexter Avenue. And this is, I mean, this is where the, the state, you know, capital is. This is where uh, some of her enslavers have lived. But it's also where Rosa Parks is arrested for refusing to give up a seat for a white, to a white man, which of course then instigates the Montgomery bus boycott. So you have these really striking connections between both the Civil War and also the Civil Rights Movement. So Bujamore lived until July 1930, and she was able to trade up until up until about the summer of 1925. So she was a visible presence. She was a cele- celebrity in the community. Basically, everybody knew who she was. Well, it's all an incredible story. Can you tell listeners how they can get the book? Yes. Well, I'd be delighted if people would like to buy the book. And, and if they do, they can find it. The easiest way is probably to go on the HarperCollins website because that list that gives you a choice of stockists to buy from. And of course, I particularly highlight bookshop.org because if you buy through them, then you can support your uh, local independent bookshop. And if there are any listeners in the Netherlands who would prefer to read it in Dutch, there is actually a Dutch t- translation. I don't think that would be on HarperCollins' website, but if you look for the publisher, which is Corrido, and get it from their website. Excellent. I'll put links in the show notes so people can find it that way. Was there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? Yeah, I guess the only other thing I can think to mention is perhaps that 
And one thing I hope that is possible from this book is that because I was identifying so many Catilda survivors when I was writing it, I realized there must be a lot of people who don't yet know that they're descended from Catilda survivors. Because Matilda McCrea, you know, she had 14 children. They didn't all survive infancy, but her grandson, who's still alive, Johnny Creer, tried to count all of her descendants. He got to about 140 and gave up. So there could be many, many descendants out there. And it gives, for those who are descendants, it gives them a chance to trace certainly one line of their heritage and find out, you know, what, what their ancestors' ethnicity was. And um, so I hope that this might be a way for some people to be able to trace their heritage. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for speaking with me. It was uh, just an excellent book, and I, I do hope people check it out. Oh, thank you. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye!